Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we come to you this morning just thanking you, thanking you for all that you have done for us. And Lord, thanking you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship you. Lord, I pray this morning that you will guide this sermon, that you will speak through me um, and give all of us the words that we need to hear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, this week, we are continuing our study into Acts, the sermon series um, called Jesus' Mission Continues. And I know it's really hard to see down there, but this is a look at the um, early church, a look at disciple making in the early church. And we want to know what lessons we can learn to help us to fulfill our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, This week we are in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be going through uh, verses 14 to 40. And this sermon is titled, um, Sharing the Gospel with Boldness. This passage shows us three guidelines in sharing the gospel. Now, first is that it is driven by the Holy Spirit, that it highlights Jesus, and that it calls to repentance. Again, sharing the gospel with boldness is driven by the Holy Spirit, it highlights Jesus, and it calls to repentance. Um, For a little bit of context, you know, last week we we learned about the, the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we saw in that that when the new church, when the early church was filled with the Holy Spirit, that it raised a lot of questions from the people that were there. Remember, there are a lot of people in the city, uh, people from all over the known world because of the, the Roman Empire and the Roman roads. People had come in from all over Rome, the Roman Empire, had come into Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, for this festival. And so there's all these people there And the early church is filled with the Holy Spirit, and it causes a lot of questions. They were asking things like, well, what does this mean? Or they might have said things like, well, they're drunk on cheap wine. And uh, the early church, being driven by the Holy Spirit, takes this opportunity to speak the gospel with boldness. And Peter stands up to give a sermon. That starts in verse 14. It says, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, Let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood there, uh, sorry, before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're going to come back to that verse 21 a lot. Now verse 21 is important. Peter says, Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the first part that we see in here is that speaking the gospel with boldness is driven by the Holy Spirit. A question that comes up, a lot of people might say, well, with Peter, he has this great opportunity to share the gospel with all these people. Why would he go to Joel? Why would he go to one of the minor prophets? Well, that's a good question. First, let's talk about that title, the minor prophets. There are a group of prophets in the Old Testament. They're towards the end of the Old Testament. And we call them the minor prophets. They're not minor prophets because they're unimportant. They're called minor because they're short books. You know, unlike Isaiah and Jeremiah, 
which you know, can seem like a marathon trying to get through reading those books. The minor prophets, uh, like Haggai and Amos and Joel and Malachi, they kind of they get up and they say what's got to be said and they sit back down. Sometimes you guys probably wish I would do the same thing. But um, you know, the minor prophets, they, they, their message is very short and, and simple and to the point. It's not short and sweet a lot of times, though. It's short and simple. But Joel had a very special message for uh, the Israelites. And see, Peter points to Joel to show the Jews that they had the context to understand the Holy Spirit. Peter says, yes, you are surprised, but know this. God said this was going to happen. God said he was going to send his Holy Spirit to his people. So you may be surprised now, but if you look, you can see the evidence for this coming. So don't be surprised. You should have been expecting this. You should, you should uh, recognize this as it comes. Peter also points to Joel um, to give himself, well, not to give himself authority, but to help the Jews recognize that the authority of this message that he is speaking is coming from God. That the Holy Spirit is from God and this, that he is giving Peter the authority to speak this message. Not that Peter has this authority on his own to speak the message. But what is so special about this message in Joel? The big part in there is in verse 17. Uh, in Acts verse 17, Acts 2, 17. Let me get there. I've, um, here it is. He says, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my Spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. See, Peter is pointing to this passage to show the Jews that every believer has access to the Holy Spirit. Every believer. See, Joel says, all people. He says, your sons and your daughters. So gender doesn't matter. He says, your young men will dream dreams and your old men will see visions. Or did I get that backwards? Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So he's saying that age doesn't matter. It also says that uh, God says, I will pour out my spirit on the servants, on my servants, both men and women. So social status. In the context here, those servants would have been more like slaves. So social status doesn't matter when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Gender, age, and social status does not matter to the Holy Spirit. What does matter in being filled with the Holy Spirit is having faith in Jesus and believing in His sacrifice, believing in the gospel. Second, what we see in this passage from Joel is uh, this, um, this mentality about the kingdom of God that's kind of already, but not yet. You see, the kingdom of God is already here, but still coming. We see this in the Gospels, and we see it throughout the rest of the New Testament, but it also is hinted at in, um, in the Minor Prophets and some of the other prophets. You see, in verse 17, Joel said, or in Acts, verse 17, in quoting Joel, it says, in the last days. And then in verse 20, it says, before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we are in the last days. I'm not saying that we are in the end times, but we are in the last days. You see, when you look at the Bible and the entire story of the Bible, it unfolds something like this. You see, God created the whole world. 
And he created me and you, all of humanity. God created us to live in relationship with him, to live in perfect relationship with him, and to live in perfect relationship with each other. But as we look around our world, we see that that's not where we are. We see that we don't all live in perfect relationship with each other, and we definitely don't live in perfect relationship with God. But we can't do anything to fix it. No matter how hard we work or how hard we try or what what we try to do to please God, we can't fix the relationship that we broke. And so some people are left back and they, they sit back and they think, well, is there any hope? God says there is hope. God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. And those that believe in that sacrifice can have eternal life and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of time, God is going to restore this world to the way it was before sin. There's going to be a restoration in all of our relationships. Well, for those believers, there's going to be a restoration of our relationships and our relationship with God, where we can live in perfect community with each other and with God once again for all eternity. But see, where we are, we are between this uh, sacrifice of Jesus and his second coming. We are in the last days because the Holy Spirit is here living in believers before Jesus comes back a second time. This is encouraging for us because we know that we have hope. This is encouraging for us because we know that Jesus is coming back to restore this world to the way it was. But it also hopefully causes some alarm because we look around us, we look in our community, we look in our families, we look at some of our coworkers, and we see that they have not been filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that they have not accepted Jesus as their Savior. See, for those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Savior, that restoration at the end of time is glorious. It is beautiful. And it's something that we can hope for. But for those people who have not accepted that salvation, it's not glorious and it's not beautiful. It's an eternity in hell but it's a hell that they deserve. It's a hell that we deserve. All of us do. But God, through his love, sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. So how do we apply this to our vision at Victory? Our vision of worshiping God by making disciples, sorry, our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we apply that? First, it's simple. Believe in Jesus. The first is to believe in Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, is to, to realize that we can never outgrow the gospel. John Piper once said that we can never, 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 never outgrow our need to depend on the gospel every moment of every day. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you must always return to the gospel. And any time that we turn away from the gospel and start to live life on our own or try to earn God's favor on our own, that's blasphemy. It's idolatry because we're saying that we can do it without God. We're saying that we don't need God. We don't need him anymore. But it is that sacrifice of Jesus that allows us to turn back to God, that allows us to grow closer to him. And finally, we know that we can never outgrow the gospel we know that we must never outgrow the gospel because speaking the gospel with, bold, with boldness is driven by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, uh, speaking the gospel with boldness highlights Jesus. 
I know this is really hard to see. I'm sorry about the projector messing up this morning. So I'll try to keep it on the passages that are easier to see, on the slides that are easier to see. Um, in Peter's sermon, he highlights Jesus in three different ways. First, he highlights the historical Jesus. And that starts in verse 22. Peter says, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. You see, Peter points to Jesus' life as a historical fact. Peter points to Jesus' life as a historical fact for the simple reason that Jesus' life is a historical fact. Jesus did literally come to this earth to live literally, not figuratively, not symbolically, not spiritually. He came physically and literally lived on this earth, historically verifiable. See, there are the historical reality of Jesus' life is primary doctrine. This is something that, that, that we as Christian, Christians, something that we as Christians cannot dispense of. We have to hold true to this, that Jesus' life is historical reality. It's not merely a fairy tale or a myth or a legend. There are many, many pieces of ev evidence within the Bible and from without the Bible that we can point to for historical validity of Jesus' life. Um, if you want to have a good study into that, in the 80s there was a book that was, that was uh, released by Lee Strobel. It was called The Case for Christ. And earlier this year they took that book and made it into a movie. And to give you some of the background for that, see Lee Strobel was a, um, he was an atheist. And his wife started going to church. And his wife believed in Jesus. And his wife was saved and baptized, and brought into the church, and she started living her life on mission for Jesus. And Lee Strobel steps back and he says, whoa, <laughs> I can't be married to some Jesus freak. This, this, this isn't working for us. So I'm going to go through and, and try to prove that Jesus did not literally exist, did not, and, and what was said in the Bible about him is not true. There may have been a man from Nazareth named Jesus, but what was said about him in the Bible isn't true. But what he did, he see, he was, uh, his job, he was an investigative journalist. And for his job, he took all that experience and all that knowledge, and he poured it into falsifying Jesus' life. But what he found was all this historical evidence that proves that Jesus came, and what was said about him in the Bible is true. And because of this study, he became a Christian. And he published the book called The Case for Christ. And they earlier this year, they took it and, and turned it into a movie. Um, I haven't seen it yet. I really want to. Um, hopefully, it'll be in Redbox soon and we can rent it. Um, but ultimately, no matter how much historical proof or how many evidence that, evidences that we show people, ultimately, belief in the, the historical reality of Jesus is going to come down to a faith issue for us. Because unlike other historical facts, where we're just, where we just have to verify that it actually happened. You see, this is, this is an aspect of spiritual warfare. Where the enemy 
is constantly telling us, Satan is constantly telling us that this is not true, that Jesus didn't actually do what was said in the Bible, or he may have done something like that, but it's been kind of blown up out of proportion and and made into a myth or a legend. Not only is it spiritual warfare, but our hearts and our minds are stained by sin. And it's really, really hard for us to recognize the truths of God because our heart and our mind loves sin. And it wants to, it, it wants to keep turning back to that sin. So ultimately, believing in the historical reality of Jesus is going to be a faith issue. And we have to put our faith in that historical reality. The second aspect of Jesus that Peter highlights is the biblical Jesus, not just the historical Jesus, but the, the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Let's see, Peter's, um, the, the way Peter does it is a little different than what we would normally do because we have the entirety of Scripture. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. So a lot of times when we want to talk about Jesus, we go to the New Testament because, well, there he is, very plain and obvious. But see, Peter didn't have the New Testament. So when Peter talks about the Jesus of the Bible, he goes to the Old Testament. In verse 25, Peter says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me. Sorry. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Then Peter says, Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. You see, Peter points to David. And where David is saying, Lord, in one of the Psalms, David is saying, Lord, you will not let my flesh experience decay. You will not abandon me in Hades. Peter says, well, here's David's tomb, and there's his bones. His body has decayed. So David must not have been speaking of himself. He was speaking prophetically as the Messiah. So Peter brings the Old Testament and uses the Old Testament to point to Jesus for the simple fact that the Old Testament does point to Jesus. Every aspect of the Old Testament highlights either our need for a Savior or God's love in the coming Messiah. Every aspect of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so Peter just finds this scripture and applies it to the Messiah. See, David's trust in Yahweh, David's trust in God, is rooted in his belief that God will ultimately overcome death through the Messiah. See, we are all enslaved by sin. We're all enslaved to death. And we cannot buy or earn our freedom. But Jesus came to redeem us from that sin. Sorry, I thought I had another slide in there. Jesus came to redeem us from that sin. Back in verse 21, remember Peter said, Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is not through our efforts to appease God. It is not through our efforts to earn salvation. It is simply by calling on the name of Jesus for salvation and trusting in his sacrifice. Thirdly, 
The third aspect of Jesus that Peter highlights is his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection and its defeat of sin. And this picks up in verse 32. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You see, Peter was highlighting Jesus' resurrection. So he highlighted Jesus' life as historical fact. He highlighted Jesus' life as shown in the Bible. And finally, he highlights Jesus' resurrection. Because it is Jesus' resurrection that differentiates Christianity from all other religions. You see, all other religions, it's, it's an attempt to appease the gods or to, an attempt to please God or an attempt to, to work your way out of this brokenness that we call life, this never-ending circle where we keep getting thrown back into this brokenness of life. Hopefully, if we live a good enough life, then we can be thrown out of this brokenness into nirvana. That's a basic Buddhist belief. But so many, or all the other religions, are all about trying to appease God or work your way out of uh, this brokenness. For evidence of that, the Muslim holiday Ramadan, that started Friday. Ramadan started Friday. And what Ramadan is, it's a month-long fast. Muslims will fast from from sunup to sundown all month long, from May 26th to June 24th. From sunup to sundown, they fast. And this fast is an attempt to please God, that hopefully we can do something good enough to earn favor from God. But see, in Christianity, Christianity is the realization that we cannot please God. It's the realization that we cannot earn God's favor. You see, Christianity points out our sin. When we speak the gospel, it points out our sin. It highlights our sin. Peter does this very obviously. He points out that the Jews had Jesus crucified. That the Jews used the Roman system to crucify Jesus. So Peter points out their sin. He doesn't back away from it. Let's see, Christianity points out our sin. But it also points out that we can't appease God. The gospel is simple. It's that God created the world. God designed this world for us to live in perfect community with Him. But we messed up that design. We turned away from God's design. We turned away from God's will, and we did our own thing. And that's called sin. That's turning away from God's will and doing what God doesn't want us to do or not doing what He does want us to do. And that leads us to brokenness. And this brokenness, we see it all around us. We see it in every aspect of our life. And we try to work our way out of brokenness. Sometimes we work uh, in our jobs to try to, to earn enough money to where we can fix our brokenness. Or we try to fix our families and in hopes that we can fix those relationships and, and then we, we no longer feel this brokenness. Or sometimes it's a hope in a political system or some political ruler that hopefully, you know, our president will be able to fix the brokenness of our system. Well, all of those aspects, all of those hopes, they're not going to fix it. It's just going to lead to more brokenness. But God sent His Son. God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. 
so that we can have everlasting life if we just believe in Him. If we repent and believe in that sacrifice, then we can recover and pursue God's design. That recovering or pursuing God's design is where we turn away from our sin and turn back toward God. Daily sacrifice of ourselves to turn back to God, to become more like Jesus, to allow God to work in us to make us more like Jesus. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this at victory and fulfilling our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ? First, I would say that we need to believe, we need to study, and we need to talk about the historical reality of Jesus. Secondly, we study the scripture so that we can know what the Bible says about Jesus, both New Testament and Old Testament. And we, and we can speak that scripture when we are sharing the gospel with others. And finally, an application point for us here is that we take that gospel and we use it to highlight the resurrection. When we are sharing the gospel with others, we highlight the resurrection and we make Jesus the hero of the story. I've heard people give their testimony and they have an awesome testimony. But then you step back at the end and you, and you wonder, well, who was really the hero of that story? Who was it the alcohol and the drugs that was the hero of that story? Because sometimes I've heard some testimonies where it's like, oh, I had this, uh, you know, I was having a great time and doing all these horrible things. And then, and then I got saved and now I'm on the straight and narrow. Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus was the hero. That sounds like Jesus was a buzzkill. Sounds like he was a killjoy. Then you hear other testimonies where people say, well, you know, I was in this brokenness and, and there are so many things going wrong in my life and then I met Jesus and now I have the power to do all these wonderful things. Well, see, again, that kind of makes it sound like they're the hero and not Jesus. But when we are sharing the gospel, we make Jesus the hero. He is the hero of the story. He is the hero of the Bible and he is the hero of history. So when we are sharing the gospel, we need to make that clear. So let's review. Speaking the gospel with boldness is driven by the Holy Spirit, and it highlights Jesus. But we cannot stop there. We can't stop there. We have to do one more thing, and that is that speaking the gospel with boldness calls us to repentance. We see that in verse 37 through 40. Here we go. It says, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Sorry. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. You see, when we hear the gospel, there is a response. There is always a response. People want to think that they can ignore the gospel, that they can hear the gospel and just ignore it, that they can hear about Jesus and just ignore him. People think that they can hear the truth of God and just ignore it. But we cannot ignore the gospel. The gospel demands a response. And in an attempt to ignore the gospel, it's simple rejection. 
Attempting to ignore the gospel is rejection. And for those who are lost as they reject the gospel, it's a hardening of the heart and they stay on that destination for hell. But for those of us who are saved, because remember, those gospel conversations are not just for lost people. Gospel conversations and our need to depend on the gospel is for believers too. And so for believers, in a te- and when we reject the gospel in our daily lives, that inhibits our spiritual maturity. It prevents us from becoming more like Jesus. And it prevents us from being used by the Holy Spirit. The correct response to hearing the gospel is repentance. The correct response is to repent. See, like I said earlier, the gospel highlights our sin. It highlights our imperfections. And so when we hear it, we need to repent. I've talked a lot about repent today, so I want to take a moment to define it. To repent simply means to turn away from something and turn towards something else. In the context of this message, in the context of the gospel, to repent means to turn away from your sin and to turn toward God. Think of it this way. If I'm walking in this direction, then I'm walking away from that direction. If I'm walking towards this wall, then I'm moving away from that wall. In our lives, if we are walking towards sin, then we are walking away from God. But to repent literally means to turn away from that sin and to pursue God. To repent means to turn away from that sin, to lay down our own desires, to pursue God and His holiness and His will for our life. That's not easy to do. For lost people, that repentance is turning away from the unbelief in Jesus and turning away from their own sin of unbelief and turning toward Jesus and His salvation. But for believers, see, we still sin. We're still imperfect. And so to repent means to turn away from whatever sin is still hindering our lives, whatever sin we still struggle with, to turn away from that and allow God to handle that, to turn away from that sin and to pursue God. And see, maybe your sin, it might be um, watching too much TV, spending too much time sitting in front of the TV. And so to repent from that would be to turn off the TV, see that's the turning away from sin, and then spend time studying the scriptures or spend time with your family and loving on them and sharing God's love with them. Maybe your sin is putting too much hope in, in a family member and that this family member might save you, might, find, might fulfill you. And see, all of our family members, they're broken people just like we are. And so they're going to fail us at some point. At some point or another, our best friends and our family members and our spouses are going to fail us. So putting our hope in them to be our Messiah is sin. And so we turn away from that sin and we can love our spouses and our family members better when we love God more. There are many, many other sins, many other sins that I struggle with, many other sins that you struggle with, but the gospel calls us to repentance, to repent from those sins. In verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So what application points do we have here? First, I think this first application point is simple. And that is to repent. Repent from your sin. If it is a sin of unbelief, repent from that sin of unbelief and turn toward Jesus and have faith in his sacrifice. If you are a believer, that repentance is to, to repent from the sins that you still struggle with and allow God to handle it and spend your time glorifying him. And second application point, now, Peter said, repent and be baptized. We, as the Southern Baptist Church, believe in uh, believer's baptism, that our baptism is in response to our faith. We see in Scripture that when somebody is saved, when they accept Jesus, then they are baptized. And so if you have never been baptized as a response of your faith, I invite you to come talk to me about that. You see, I've heard a lot of different examples and, and analogies for baptism, but I think the best one is that baptism is kind of like my wedding ring. See, my wedding ring does not make me married in the same way that baptism does not make you saved. I can take off my wedding ring, and I'm still married. Now, Hannah's usually not very happy about me going about my life without my wedding ring, you know, because this wedding ring, it's a symbol of our marriage. It's a symbol of our unity. And it's, it's an announcement to the world that I'm married. In the same way, baptism is an announcement to the world that we belong to God and that we have accepted His love for our life. The baptism is a symbol of that salvation that we have accepted. Finally, the last application point is to speak the gospel with boldness. Speak the gospel with boldness to lost people and speak the gospel with boldness to believers, because we all need it. And if you want, if, if you are interested in that, if you feel like it's this big, daunting, scary um, objective that, that we can't do, and I just, I, I don't know how to do it, well, join us on June 24th, where we're doing our workshop called Gospel Conversations for Making Disciples. In this workshop, we will learn how to share the gospel with lost people for salvation, and we will learn how to share the gospel with believers for sanctification and that process of growing closer to Jesus. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this message. I thank you for your word. But mostly, Lord, I thank you for your son and his sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray that each of us will come to a point of repentance in our lives. Lord, I pray that you will show us our sins so that we can repent from them. Show us your will for our life so that we can turn toward you and pursue you. Lord, I pray that you will touch each and every one of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.